You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. This is episode 28. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at metamorecity.com and chrislester.org. It's my pleasure to bring you fresh new fiction before you hear it anywhere else. So on that note, let's go to today's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 2 of my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. Up to now, I've been splitting the chapters in half, but Chapter 2 is a little shorter than the others, and it doesn't have a good halfway point to stop at. So this week, you're getting the whole thing. If you haven't listened to the last four episodes yet... Go back and catch up before you go any further, because the following recap will contain spoilers. Our story began in October 1974, Christos Reckoning, when Dr. Cynthia Rains and the rest of Light Path One disappeared while exploring the mysterious Telvari Rift. It continued in March 2000, when Cynthia's son Hal went to the Rift Zone with a group of his childhood friends, The children of wealthy and powerful noble houses, they saw the chance to explore the forbidden inner rift zone as a great adventure. There was something alive in the rift itself, something Lightpath One had tried to contact. If they could recreate that communion spell, perhaps the entity in the rift could tell them what happened to Hal's mother. Some of them, though, wanted more. The mastermind of the plan, Ezekiel Kapler, let slip his real reason for going to the rift— After the disappearance of Lightpath 1, the rescue party in Lightpath 2 had also been exposed to the rift's arcane radiation. But where Lightpath 1 had vanished completely, the more heavily shielded members of Lightpath 2 had gained extraordinary psychic abilities. It appeared that Zeke wanted to become a Psy, and he was willing to risk arrest or death in order to make it happen. The reason why Zeke was so obsessed remains a mystery. Two weeks later, a man stumbled through the bowels of Metamore City, into the darkest part of the street. He attracted the attention of one of the city's subterranean predators, but before the hunter could strike, it realized the man was behaving erratically. "'Get out of my head!' the man shouted, smashing his own skull against a fire escape. Then white fire erupted from the man's body, consuming him from the inside out. When the light had gone... All that remained was a dried and blackened corpse. A corpse that would soon attract other forms of attention. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 2 Wednesday, April 4th, 2000 Christos Reckoning Kate's phone rang at a quarter to six, halfway through her morning warm-up. In her line of work, that was never good. She paused in mid-stretch, one ankle tucked behind her ear, and thought carefully for a moment about where she had left the handset. Then she eased out of the stretch reached behind her into the maze of clutter on the nightstand, and retrieved the phone on the first try. "'Katane here,' she said. David's voice answered her. 
calm but serious. Kate, good. I'm glad I caught you before you run. We have a stop to make on the way into work. Kate sighed. Can it wait? You know I need my morning endorphin rush. She heard the smile in David's voice. I'm afraid not, partner. Get yourself in the shower and get dressed as fast as you can. I'll be there in twenty. Only twenty minutes? You're a sadist. Move your ass, detective, David said cheerfully. Evil is afoot. Yeah, yeah. Kate rang off, rose, arched her back in one final stretch, and headed for the bathroom. David was already waiting in her kitchen when she came out eighteen minutes later, still combing out her shoulder-length hair. He had an extra-large coffee in one hand and a raspberry scone in the other. He held them out to her like offerings to appease an angry goddess. Kate wordlessly took the coffee and sipped. It was black, as Eli intended, with notes of cinnamon and nutmeg, dark and earthy but not over-roasted, hot but not scalding. She gulped down a third of it, took a large bite of scone, then chased it with another large swallow of coffee. She turned back to David. You're forgiven, she said. The elf smiled, his violet eyes sparkling. I'm so relieved. She punched his shoulder, being careful not to crush the scone in the process. <laughs> Skag. I try. They headed for the front door. Kate passed the scone and the coffee back to her partner, who held them dutifully as she put on her gear. The shoulder holster held her standard-issue firearm and two extra mags of ammunition. Her utility belt had thirteen small pouches filled with different reagents, as well as a sheath for her silver arthana and a small circular mirror that she clipped to the belt at the small of her back. Her slender holdout pistol, barely larger than a deck of cards, went in a holster around her right calf. Rugged leather combat boots concealed two throwing knives in hidden sheaths. Lastly, she put on her bomber jacket, the dark brown leather embroidered with intricate sigils in silver thread. The inner lining of the jacket was strewn with pockets, which held more reagents, her badge, her keys, and a few of the more mundane tools of the detective business, such as nitrile gloves and zip-top bags. Ready, she said. Where are we headed? David passed her the coffee and pastry, then held the door for her as they left. Hunter's Hollow, he said. Kate nearly spit out her coffee. Before sunrise? Us and what army? The Lightbringers, apparently. The captain says they've secured the area. Kate rubbed at the bridge of her nose. Lovely. Let's hope they haven't trampled any useful evidence. What are we investigating, anyway? In the hollow? What else? David asked, grimly. There's a body. The skimmer lift creaked and rattled as it lowered the police cruiser to street level. The doors slid open, and an iron portcullis lifted out of the way, its bars bent and scratched as if some great beast had tried to claw its way inside. Which, Kate reflected, was probably exactly what had happened. Hunter's Hollow was a loose network of streets, alleys, and tunnels, about a kilometer north of Kate's apartment. It centered around the grim, gray visage of Trent Tower, and extended for a city block or two into the interiors of each of the neighboring megastructures. It was the darkest of the many dark corners of Metamore City's street level, and not even the Lightbringers went there casually. As close as it was to Kate's home, it felt half a world away. 
Kate ran back through her eidetic memory, recalling what she had learned about the place. Trent Tower was one of the first super skyscrapers to be powered by a nuclear pocket reactor, and the experimental design had suffered a serious malfunction in the 1960s. A team of mages and engineers had contained the disaster, but not before the lower levels of the tower became so contaminated as to be unusable for human habitation. Rather than scrap such a huge investment so soon after its completion, Trent's owners sealed up the lower stories and shunted in power from an adjacent tower, abandoning the street level entirely. The surrounding neighborhood had gone into an abrupt decline from which it never recovered, even in places well beyond the original contamination. But the tower hadn't stayed abandoned, not completely. Over time, other occupants had made their homes in the tower, creatures that were immune to the lingering radiation hazard, or were simply too feral to understand the danger. They burrowed up from places deep in the earth, nesting in the empty floors and around the vitrified remains of the dead reactor. Kate didn't know what they were or where they had come from, but Hunter's Hollow belonged to them now, and it seemed unlikely that anyone would ever try to take it back from them. A tall and serious-looking woman stood guard outside the entrance to the skimmer lift. She was armed with an assault rifle, a bandolier of grenades, a long, curving knife, four potion flasks, and at least two pistols that Kate could see. Her uniform and combat armor were a spotless white, thanks to a cleanliness enchantment in the spell-woven fabric. A long, jagged scar ran from above her right eyebrow, across her nose, and down her left cheek to the side of her jaw. Somehow she made it look good, or at least damned impressive. A blue and gold shield on her upper right sleeve bore the twin cross of the Lothanasi order. It was the only symbol of rank she had, or needed. Kate waved to the woman as she exited the cruiser. Good morning, Kelsey. The soldier frowned in confusion. Have we met, Miss... Katane, Kate said, giving her a more formal bow. Detective Lieutenant Catherine Katane, Magic Affairs, MCPD, 9th Precinct. This is my partner, Detective Lieutenant David Silverleaf. David bowed as well, making it look effortless. A pleasure. And you, Kate continued, are Agent Kelsey Stanton, Lothanasi Order. We met three years ago at a benefit concert for the Hope Foundation. You were working security. I brought you canapes. Kelsey's face brightened. Oh, yeah, Kate, of course. I didn't recognize you without the blue hair. She raised her eyebrows. That's a hell of a memory you've got there. Kate grinned and shrugged. It's a gift. Is the boss man around? Kelsey nodded toward an alley thirty meters down the road. The commander's over there. I'll warn you, he's not in a real good mood this morning. When is he ever? Kate asked. Thanks, Kelsey. The warrior woman gave her a sharp nod. Sure. Good hunting. You too. A ring of Lightbringer agents stood around the mouth of the alley, weapons at the ready. Summoned balls of light hung high over the street, filling the air with a soft blue radiance without spoiling their night vision. Two of the soldiers swung their guns toward Kate and David as they approached. Kate smirked and raised her right hand, sending a small effort of will into her index finger. The fingertip glowed with green light, and she used it to draw out the words, Hi, Janus followed by a smiley face. The figment floated up and hung in the air above her as she approached, following her like the word balloons in a comic strip. 
Agent Janus Starson, field commander of the Lothanasi, came out from the circle of soldiers with a glowing sword in his hand. He was an imposing man, over a hundred and ninety centimeters of lean muscle on a powerful frame. He had a tiger's grace, every motion confident and without a moment's wasted effort. Piercing blue eyes glared at Kate above an aquiline nose. His prominent cheekbones stood out in sharp contrast in the blue-white light, throwing the sides of his face into shadow. His broad, thin lips were set in a hard line. Kate showed him an excessively cheery smile. Good morning, Janus. How's the hunting today? Janus gave her a cursory bow that was little more than a nod. Detective Katane? A deeper bow to David. Detective Silverleaf? Agent Starson? the elf said, returning the gesture. Here you got a DB for us to check out, Kate said. She nodded toward the alley. In there, I take it? Detective, Janus held up a hand. We haven't yet determined whether this case falls within your jurisdiction. There's evidence at least one supernatural predator was present at the scene. Fair enough, Kate said easily. Let's take a look and see what we find. If this turns out to be a job for the monster hunters, I'll be more than happy to let you handle it. But if not, then it's our show. Janus's frown deepened, but he nodded. Very well. He turned aside and let Kate and David walk past him into the alley. The smell struck her first. Not the stench of voided bowels, usually found among the freshly dead, nor the putrescence of a body that had begun to decay. This crime scene smelled like bacon that had been left too long on the griddle. With one look at the body, it was easy to see why. The shriveled husk of a man, or something approximating a man, lay on the asphalt beside a rusty fire escape. Kate's first impression was of a mummy, leathery skin stretched tight over the bones. The body lay with legs folded beneath it, as if the victim had fallen to his knees and then tipped over backwards. The arms were tucked up against the sides of the chest, the fingers curled into claws. The eyes were gone, leaving only blackened pits in their place. The mouth yawned wide in a rictus of pain or fear, though it might simply have been pulled open by the withering tendons in the jaw. The man's hair and beard remained, but the hairs had curled and fused together as from an intense heat. Most striking of all was the man's torso— the chest cavity was, for lack of a better term, a smoldering crater. Blackened ribs sprung out on either side of a gruesome, cinder-filled hole, which ran from the man's throat down to somewhere in the vicinity of his navel. By the prophet, Kate breathed, unable to look away. She had seen some terrible things in her years as a cop, but this... this was a new one. A gentle hand grasped her shoulder and she heard David's voice in her ear. Catherine, are you all right? Kate blinked, shook herself, and tore her eyes away from the corpse. I... yeah, I'm all right. She took a deep breath, then immediately regretted it, as that burnt bacon scent filled her nose again. She forced down the nausea and turned her attention to the rest of the alley. The Lightbringer's crime scene investigation team was already hard at work, taking photographs, laying down markers, and bagging hairs, fibers, scattered garbage, and anything else that might prove informative. One technician was spraying fixative on a set of tracks that looked like they'd been left by something large and claw-like, 
Another scraped dried blood from a series of droplets and spatter marks that had been circled with magnetic chalk. It was not the beehive of activity often seen on television dramas. The CSI team worked slowly, deliberately, and with great care not to disturb the smallest bit of evidence until it had been properly documented. Okay, I'll give the libs credit, Kate murmured to David. They might be trigger-happy, but they know their way around a crime scene. Some of them, anyway, David agreed. Detectives? A rail-thin shorey woman with chocolate-brown skin approached them, offering gloves and plastic baggies for their feet. Kate and David obediently put them on as the woman bowed in greeting. I'm Agent Yancy Takahashi, she said. Lothanasi Order, CSI Division. You must be Katane and Silverleaf. Good guess, Kate said. What have you found so far? The muscles tightened around Takahashi's almond eyes. Lots of questions and not many answers. She beckoned them over to a spot near the body, where she crouched beside the exposed ribcage. Kate forced herself to disconnect from the horror of the scene, to push back her natural human empathy and see the body as a thing, not a person who had died in apparent agony, but a collection of clues that would help her piece together the events that had happened here. Kate had been working as a detective for years, and the process was familiar to her by now. There would be time for the nightmares later. Takahashi gestured at one of the ribs with the eraser end of a pencil. There are bite marks on the bones, here and here, and more on the skin, here. But other than that, the body's been left alone. Scavengers, David said, his voice and expression pensive. They investigated the body, but left when they found nothing edible. That's what I think, too, Takahashi said. Something big was here, though. More than four legs and definitely hunter scale. It came out of the trash pile over there. She gestured at a heap of refuse midway down the alley, and nosed around the body for a bit, then moved off. Any defensive wounds? Kate asked. You'll have to ask the M.E. when she gets here, but I'm thinking no. The skull has a hairline fracture, which matches up with that bloodstain on the fire escape. She pointed at a red-brown spot on the iron railing. There's also a trail of blood droplets that goes for at least ten meters around the corner. Splash pattern tells me they came from a height of 150 to 170. It's hard to tell now, but I'd say the guy had a bad nosebleed right before... whatever happened happened to him. Kate and David exchanged a look. Nosebleeds were a common side effect of heavy magic use. Holding a spell in one's mind long enough to cast it took a lot of effort from a human brain, which then required more blood from the heart to keep up with the demand for oxygen. Sometimes the increased blood pressure ruptured the more delicate capillaries in the head, leading to nosebleeds and bloodshot eyes. You think this guy burned himself out trying to cast a spell? Kate asked. Takahashi's lips turned up at one corner. Actually, I was hoping you could tell me. I haven't seen anything yet that points to a more mundane explanation. Kate rested her chin on one fist, thinking. I can do an augury on the body, but it won't be admissible in court. Divination is always iffy, and there's a lot of things that can screw with the reading. Takahashi shrugged. That's fine with me. All I need to know is if there were outsiders involved. If we find out there weren't, I can shuffle this over to you, and it's not my problem anymore. She smiled humorlessly. And frankly, you're welcome to have this one as far as I'm concerned. Kate snorted. I think the feeling is mutual. 
David leaned in between the two women, peering at the body. Agent Takahashi, he asked slowly, where is this man's sternum? Notice that, huh? Takahashi said dryly. Blown to bits, as far as I can tell. We've been picking bone shards out of the alley for the last hour. Kate let out a low whistle. That sounds less like a spell than a hand grenade. Takahashi raised an eyebrow. Inside his chest? Kate sighed, frustrated. Okay, yeah, that's pretty unlikely. But to do something like this with magic... David, you're the life mage. Help me out here. David's eyes narrowed. There are four amalin that run through the chest and abdomen. Mala what now? Takahashi asked. Energy nodes, David said. Places in the body where mana is stored by a practitioner before casting a spell. To do this, something catastrophic would have to happen to all four nodes simultaneously. Like a power surge in your house, Takahashi said. Something blew out the fuses. Perhaps, David said. I've never actually investigated how you would do such a thing. Takahashi shuddered. Gods, I would hope not. Kate stood and brushed off her jeans. We'll do the augury once the mundane side of the investigation is finished. I assume the M.E. is on her way? One of them is, the Lightbringer said. We called them right before we called you. The head M.E. isn't available, but she said she's sending her best deputy. Kate smiled knowingly. Dr. Morgan Drowling was the best M.E. she'd ever worked with, but there was no way she'd visit an outdoor crime scene this close to dawn. Being a vampire gave Morgan some real advantages, but it wasn't without its drawbacks. All right, Kate said. Well, Agent, this is still your crime scene until we clear up the jurisdiction. Anything we can do to help until the meat wagon gets here? Takahashi handed her a roll of evidence bags and a pair of tweezers. Remember what I said about the guy's sternum? Kate forced a queasy smile. Ah, the glamorous life of the police detective. Three hours later, the CSI team had completed their work, and the deputy medical examiner had inspected the body. She promptly pronounced herself baffled as hell, took several tissue samples and a lot of photographs, then stepped back to let Kate do her work. Taking out a piece of magnetic chalk, Kate drew a careful circle around the body. An intricate set of glyphs and sigils went in a second ring around the circle, focusing and channeling the mana that Kate was about to invest into the spell. She placed small white candles at five equidistant points around the circle and lit them with a cigar torch. Then she knelt outside the circle and drew a second, smaller circle around herself, connecting it to the main circle through two of the focusing glyphs. She placed her pocket mirror on the pavement in front of her. Then, with her right hand, she drew out her arthana. The ornamented silver dagger was not intended as a physical weapon though it was sharp enough to be used as one in an emergency. The Arthana's purpose was more symbolic. It was tied to the arcane aspect of air, which encompassed the realms of thought, memory, and Kate's own specialty, illusion. Fire mages used wands to focus their magic. Earth mages preferred crystals or metal amulets. Water mages used cups and basins. When Kate needed to focus a lot of power on a spell, she used the Arthana. She closed her eyes and concentrated her attention on the dagger in her hand, imagining the blade as an extension of her own body. 
Mentally, she reached into a place inside herself, a spot about two fingers below her navel that she envisioned as the center of her being. Power began to flow out of that center, a warm, tingling sensation that traveled up her spine, filled her chest, and flowed down her right arm and into the dagger. She let the mana build up inside the blade, focusing it into the dagger's cutting edge, until the back pressure from it made her skin tingle and her hair stand on end. She raised the blade and moved it in a circular path above the mirror, as if cutting a hole in an invisible curtain. Ausantis estero, she said. Then she touched the tip of the dagger to the edge of her circle, completing the spell. Power rushed out of her in a smooth current, making her body flush hot and cool, as if every part of her had been rubbed with menthol. Her heartbeat quickened, and she felt a sudden pressure in her temples and behind her eyes. The lines of chalk flared with blue-green light, and the candles flared with flames that had turned the same color. The mirror burst into light, shining like a movie projector onto the imaginary circle Kate had drawn in the air. And within that circle, images came to life before her eyes. She saw the alley as it had been when it was first built, a minor side street in the midst of a young and bustling neighborhood. Time sped forward, and she saw the towers rise around the little street, followed by its inevitable decline, as the wealthy and successful took their money to ever higher levels of the city. The images of people and animals flickered past in rapid succession. Most were too brief to recognize, but moments of intense emotion lingered. She saw amorous couples making love behind the fire escape, a man with a bottle weeping for his dead wife, an elderly woman being mugged at knife point. Then, disaster. A flash of light, smoke billowing from the depths of Trent Tower, people with radiation burns carried screaming from the scene, a team of master wizards working desperately to contain the damage. Finally, the hunters moved in, predators drawn by the psychic stains of terror and bloodshed, filling the vacuum that the humans' flight had created. Hunter's Hollow became what it was today, an urban wasteland where fear and hunger reigned. And then, without warning, the vision went black. The spell ran head-on into a metaphysical brick wall, splashing against it and splattering its energies in a thousand directions. The light of the circle faded, and Kate felt the mana she had channeled sink into the earth and vanish. She opened her eyes. Shit. David gave her a questioning look. Occultation spell, she said. Takahashi frowned. Meaning? Somebody wiped their prints, Kate said. Whatever happened here, someone doesn't want us to know about it. Kate and David finally arrived at the Precinct 9 station house at a quarter to twelve. Kate's stomach rumbled as they passed the sandwich vendor's kiosk beside the entrance, and they stopped to pick up some lunch. She studiously ignored the sign offering bacon as an additional topping. She wondered if she'd ever be able to eat it again without thinking of the man in the alley. Marcy, the dispatcher, waved to them as they came in. The cap's inside, she said, pointing at the office door behind her. The stencils on the frosted glass read Captain Joseph G. Montgomery. He wants to see you right away. David raised an eyebrow. Is there a problem? Yeah, Marcy said sourly. 
the blue-blooded variety. Kate grimaced. A Skywalker? Here? Came in about half an hour ago, Marcy said. He's inside with the cap. Watch your manners, kitten. This one's a heavy hitter. Kate swallowed once. Got it. Leaving her half-eaten sandwich on Marcy's desk, she wiped her mouth, brushed back a lock of her auburn hair, and went inside. Captain Montgomery sat behind his desk with the air of a man under siege. Considering that Montgomery was eighty kilos of solid muscle and had the face and claws of a wolverine, it took a lot to make the captain look rattled. Montgomery was one of the nearly six million people in the city who had chosen to take on the Curse of Metamore. Originally designed as an offensive spell by the dark wizard Nasage, the curse had used the power of the dark gods to forcibly transform the people of Metamore, reshaping them into forms that Nasage believed would be unable to resist his armies. The Metamorians partially countered the spell, but its effects lingered and with the rise of ambient magic in the world, the curse spread to cover a much larger area. In typically stubborn fashion, the people of Metamore accepted the curse as a badge of honor, a mark of how deeply Nesaj feared them. Even today, when the curse could be held at bay through the use of subdermal amulets, nearly half of the city's populace still chose to take on one of the curse's three variants. In Montgomery's case, that meant becoming a theriomorph, not a true were-creature, but as close to one as most people were ever likely to see. The captain could return to his full human form, that of a stocky, dark-skinned man in his mid-fifties, but he would build up stress on his body that could only be repaid through taking on a full animal form for an equal amount of time. Since going without opposable thumbs was inconvenient, to say the least, the cap spent most of his time in this intermediate form, human-sized, roughly humanoid in shape, but with fur, claws, and a bestial-looking head. Given the sort of people the police captain usually had to work with, such a fearsome appearance was rarely a disadvantage. It wasn't helping him a bit right now, though. The first thing Kate noticed about the room, other than the captain himself, was that it was full of people. Half a dozen men and women formed a loose circle around the room, all of them dressed in the livery of a noble house. They wore batons, handguns, and shock sticks, even here in the heart of a police station. That was intolerable, as far as Kate was concerned. And judging from the way his fur stood on end, the cap agreed with her. In the center of this ring of bodyguards stood a gray-haired man in an old-fashioned brown equestrian uniform, with calf-high riding boots and a line of medals and service ribbons on the double-breasted coat. He might have been handsome once, but the years had not been kind to him, and deep lines creased his face around the mouth and eyes. He had a cape, of all things, pinned around the shoulders of his uniform. The emblem of his house, a black mountain, flanked by laurels on a white field, stood out prominently against the burgundy fabric of the cape. The captain cleared his throat. Ah, Kate and David, good. Your Lordship, these are Detectives Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf, Magic Affairs. Kate, David, this is... The nobleman turned his back on the captain, ignoring him. He fixed his piercing gaze on the two detectives. I am Count Xavier Holloway, Imperial Minister of Intelligence. And you, my good detectives, are going to find out what has happened to my daughter.
And that's the end of chapter two, folks. Who was the body in Hunter's Hollow? What happened to him? And now that Misty Halloway's father is involved, what will it mean for Kate and David, or for our five young nobles? The mystery continues next week. Friedrich Nietzsche said, Of all that is written, I love only what a man has written with his blood. Write with blood, and you will find that blood is spirit. I sure hope he was speaking metaphorically, because I think my veins would run dry before I ran out of stories. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 7,945 words this week, over the course of 8.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 908 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 186 days without breaking my chain. That's right, folks. As of this week, I've been writing every day for more than six months. Man, that feels good. I'm up to chapter 13 now in The Lost and the Least, with the running word count at over 41,000 words. I didn't realize how massive this story was until I got into the process of writing it, but it's clear now that this is going to be a much bigger book than Things Unseen. I may end up having to do some substantial editing later, but I'm not going to worry about that right now. I'm writing regularly, I'm writing a lot, and as long as I keep going, it's only a matter of time before I finish it. By the way, I want to give another plug for J. Daniel Sawyer's new podcast, NaNoWriMo Every Month. Every day during the month of November, Dan has been putting out these little 5-10 to minute episodes about the art and craft of writing. I found them to be very inspiring. And if you're looking to keep up your own writing habit after November is finished, you owe it to yourself to check out the podcast. It's at nanorimoeverymonth.com. That's N-A-N-O-W-R-I-M-O everymonth.com. I'll have the link in the show notes. And now, the feedback. Hi, Chris. This is Mark. I wanted to let you know that the way I always prefer to articulate it is that the three basic stories are man versus man, man versus nature, and dog versus vampire. And I really think that you can't understate the importance and depth of that third narrative, dog versus vampire. It's the one that always really has, uh, has touched me. That is an excellent point, Mark. The dog versus vampire conflict gave us the Underworld series, after all, and because of that, we can all enjoy the delectable image of Kate Beckinsale in full-body leather, wielding swords and Uzis, those dark, penetrating eyes gazing out at us like... I'm, I'm sorry, what were we talking about? Uh, thank you so much for finally bringing things I'm seeing uh, back to the air. It was the last thing I heard during the older duration of your podcast, and um, I'm really happy that I get to... Uh, Finally find out where the story is going. That's all I wanted to say. That's the good work. Bye. Thanks, Mark. And I'm just as excited to be able to share with you where the story is going. I have a feeling you're going to enjoy the ride. Now it's time to honor this week's new Patreon patron, Linda. Linda has joined the Patreon campaign at the $3 a month level. That means she gets access to story previews, author commentaries, and cover reveals before they go out to the general public. She also gets a bonus story every month, which is available to all backers as long as we keep hitting our $100 milestone goal. 
if we reach the $200 milestone goal, and with Linda's contribution, we're only $15 away, then all patrons will receive a new black-and-white story illustration, courtesy of artist Randall Fulton. If you want to help us make our goal, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make your pledge today. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or mp3 audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, call area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow fans, join the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. You'll find the link in the show notes. That'll do it for this week, folks. Come back next time for more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.